Hello guys, it's me Daniel once again. Welcome back to Roots, a podcast about greatness. First of all, I want to start by saying if you haven't watched Beyonce's Blackest King on Disney Plus, or you can get it on the Fire Stick as well, please go watch it. It's amazing. It's always beautiful when black artists and as big as Beyonce is start to reconnect with their roots, with Africa, and start to paint a picture of of what it truly is, the richest culture in the world. And I'm not talking riches and wealth as in economically, because wealth is of the mind and not the pocket. But I'm talking about wealth in culture, in history, in what we are as black people, as Africans. Because whether you like it or not, we all are Africans. The only difference between a Afro-Colombian, Afro-Cuban, a Dominican, Puerto Rican, Black American is simply where the boat shipped. And going along the tracks of Black is King, showing wealth and richness of culture, we're going to be talking about the richest person to ever live, Mansa Musa. Imagine all the gold you'd think a human being could ever have and double it. No, triple it. When no one can even comprehend how vastly your wealth is, it means you're rich as hell. This is the story of King Midas himself. This is the Malian Empire and most celebrated ruler ever, Mansa Musa I. This episode might be a little bit longer than the previous ones, but I promise you will enjoy. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. First, we have to be talking about the Empire of Mali, the Malian Empire which was one of the largest empires in West African history and at its apex spanned from the Atlantic coast to central parts of the Saharan desert. The empire was founded in 1235 by the legendary King Sundiata and it lasted until the early 1600s. The Malian Empire arose with the consolidation of several small Malinke kingdoms in Ghana around the areas of the upper Niger River. Most of what is known about the Malian Empire's early history was collected by Arabic scholars in the 1300s and 1400s. A king named Sumanunguru Kante ruled the Suzu Kingdom, which had conquered the Malinke people in the early 13th century. But the king known as Sandiata organized the Malinke resistance against this kingdom. And it's believed by many historians that King Sandiata founded Mali when he defeated King Kante like Angola. Malian rulers adopted the title of Mansa, meaning king. So King Sundiata is referred to as Mansa Sundiata. He established himself as a strong leader in both religious and secular sense. He claimed that he had a direct link to the spirits of the land, thus making him the guardian of the ancestors. The kingdom spread across parts of what today is Mali, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, Mauritania, and Burkina Faso. It consisted of outlying areas and small kingdoms that pledged allegiance to Mali by offering annual tributes in form of rice, millets, lances, arrows, and the kingdom of Mali prospered from the taxes collected from its citizens, and all goods brought in and out of the empire were heavily taxated, while all gold nuggets belonged to the king. From all the contact they had with 
Arab merchants, indigenous rulers adopted Islam as their religion, and the Malian Empire would thus play a significant part in the spread of Islam across West Africa. They would even perform pilgrimages to the Islamic holy sites like Mecca. And that's where we're about to shift to the greatest Malian ruler ever. Mansa Musa. He was the grandnephew of the founder, Mansa Sundiata. He took power in 1312 and inherited an already prosperous Malian kingdom, but his work in expanding trade made Mali the wealthiest kingdom in Africa. Malian's quality of life made other territories want to join the Malian empire under Musa's rule to raise their own standard quality of living. But when push came to shove, Musa was not afraid to hit the grounds. He conquered over 24 territories and it's reported that he never lost a single battle. With an army numbering around 100,000 men, including armored cavalry corps of 10,000 horses, Musa was able to extend the Malian Empire to double its size, making it only second only to that of the Mongol Empire at the time. Never destined to be king, the throne was actually meant for his brother, Abu Bakr II. As soon as he got to the throne, he was obsessed with the sea. He spent years dazing over the ocean, thinking what would lie on the other side. He asked for engineers all around Lake Chad to build him the strongest ships possible. He even hired crews of sailors, traders, builders, artists, warriors, and learned men. He told them not to return, until they reached the end of the ocean or ran out of the vast supplies. Only one of them returned and said something about currents taking the ships by themselves and he was left behind. Remember of those currents I told you guys in the episode about Africans in America before Columbus? In 1311, Abu Bakr appointed Musa as a regent while he set on an expedition across the sea. Tens of thousands of soldiers, women, slaves, a thousand ships of supplies, a thousand ships of people. Did they arrive? Rem remember what I told you guys about Columbus's journals, about the natives talking about black-skinned people, that the spears they traded with them were made of something called guanin, which, let me tell you, is the Mandinkan word for gold, the language of the Malian Empire. And what you're about to learn is that gold was in abundance in the Malian Empire. In his world-famous trip to Mecca, when asked about his rise to power, Mansa Musa said, The monarch who preceded me didn't think and wouldn't believe that it was impossible to discover the limits of the neighboring sea. He wished to know, and he persisted in his plan. Today, scholars think they arrived to Brazil and settled there. So when he didn't return, Musa named himself Mansa Musa, King Musa I. At least half of the world's known gold reserve was for him and him alone. In history, there has been extremely exorbitant displays of wealth, like Roman Emperor Augustus, who had what today would be like 4.6 trillion during his reign, and Chinese Emperor Chen Zong, who had about 25% of the global GDP. But even if these two joined together, they wouldn't even have enough money to lace Mansa Musa's golden sandals. As it's tradition in the Islam religion, every Muslim who practices it and is able to should visit Mecca at least once in their lifetimes 
and this was no different for Mansa Musa I. This trip would change every West African narrative everyone had at the time. It was a rude awakening for everyone not familiar with West Africa. Previous rulers had visited Mecca, but went on their pilgrimage being just that, pilgrims. But Musa decided his trip was to live up to king standards, 60,000 men, which included singers, soldiers, merchants, women, servants, a hundred camels, sheep, everything and everyone draped in gold and the finest Persian silks. Even the lowest on the slave rank was draped in nothing but gold. 500 servants walked with three kilos of solid gold. Each camel with 135 kilos or 300 pounds of gold. The horses carried the finest textiles you could find in Africa. He provided every necessity to the entire caravan, animals and humans. He showered in gold dust the poor he met along the way and even gave large amounts of it to every city his trip touched. He even traded gold for common souvenirs, like King Midas would have done. It's been reported that during his trip, he even built a mosque every Friday, wherever they were. In 1324, Cairo was supposed to be the richest city in Africa, Egypt, for those that don't know. It was ruled by Sultan al-Malik al-Nasir, who was no stranger to wealth. But when he saw Mansa Musa's caravan, He himself had to pick his jaw off the ground after such display of wealth. Musa's first act was send him 50,000 gold dina, just as a way of saying hi. That is roughly about 210 kilos of gold, almost 500 pounds of gold. Just to show how wild this is, a kilo of gold in today's value is about $50,000. So Musa just handed it like that, like, hi, I'm here, nice city. I fuck with the vision, keep it up. But he said he was only passing by on a way to Mecca. It was just a way to say hello. After receiving the gift, the Sultan Al-Nasir demanded the Malian king to come and see him. But that would mean Musa had to kiss the ground before the Sultan as a mark of respect. Musa refused several times, but after seeing how the tension was rising, he had to swallow his pride and return to the Sultan as he opened Cairo to Musa as his personal playground. They stayed in Cairo for about three months and stayed in a palace the Sultan gave them. Mansa Musa would wander the streets every day and simply hand nuggets of gold like if they were Tic Tacs, like if they were Skittles. Egyptian merchants would rise up the prices on everything and Malians were like, okay, no problem. Then to be raised again and again and again. You know how when those Spanish murderers sacked and looted Latin America, stealing all the gold and taking it back to Spain, that caused a market crash? Okay, so what hundreds of them did to Spain, Musa did to Egypt by himself. 20% of the value of gold slumped for 12 years. He basically controlled the price of gold in all the Mediterranean, like a true socialist king. Everyone gets some money, everyone gets a piece of the cake, no one starves. These exploits would soon reach all parts of Africa and Europe, starting the legend of an African king whose gold supply would simply never run out. Getting to Arabia, he kept handing out gold like if they were Tic Tacs, but also keeping an eye out for schools, libraries, edifications. He liked what he saw and he left Mecca both as a fulfilled Muslim 
but also as a ruler with a plan to make Mali the center of cultural progress and even rival Mecca. What cemented his long-lasting legacy was not only his wealth, but the fact that he used his vast amount of money to tempt Islamic scholars to go back with him, including direct descendants of Mohammed, the prophet. He even offered a thousand mythcals to any direct descendant of Mohammed who would go back to Mali with him. Four of them eventually agreed to go. On the way back home, he went to Cairo with a mission to take one man in a city of millions, a man from Moorish Spain, Abu Ishaq Al-Tuajin, who was a renowned architect and poet. He wanted to make Timbuktu into the center of cultural prowess to rival Mecca. He built at the time the largest African mosque, the Dejimguerber Mosque, known even today as an architectural masterpiece, which continues to be used today for prayer. Mansa Musa, also inspired by the universities he had seen on his pilgrimage, he brought back to Mali both books and scholars. The king greatly encouraged Islamic learning, especially at Timbuktu, which with its mosques, universities and many Quranic schools, became not only the holiest city in the Sudan region of West Africa, but also an internationally famous center of culture and religious study. In addition to that, Mansa Musa sent native religious scholars to Fez in Morocco to learn what they could and then return to Mali as teachers. With these education links, there were two diplomatic ones with Arab states, as well as the flow of investment into Mali, as Egyptian traders and others sought access to the lucrative movement of goods across West Africa. Timbuktu became peppered with libraries, schools, foundations of the modern-day universities, Musa was a patron of the arts. He threw gold at art, culture, and in short, Timbuktu became culturally to that century what Paris is to the 19th century and even to this day. If you guys know about the Renaissance and about the Medici family's role in the Renaissance, paying famous artists, sculptures like Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, to just focus on arts, don't worry about the money, you will be fed, you will be paid, just focus on your craft, focus on your art, which resulted in the Renaissance and the foundations of art as we know it, the foundation of life. Basically what the Medici family did during that time, Musa was doing it in the 14th century. So the precursor of art as a patron was Mansa Musa I, the king of the Malian Empire. Anyways, Timbuktu became the focal point of an entire continent. It drew Muslims from all around Africa and the Mediterranean as a place of learning and culture. The university was filled with astronomers, jurors, and even mathematicians. It's even said that it could house up about 25,000 students. And by the time of Mansa Musa's death, Timbuktu had the largest collections of books in Africa since the Alexandria Library with even one million manuscripts. In 1337, he died of natural causes, leaving a wealthy, culturally and economically, powerhouse of an empire. It would make anyone who sat on that throne the richest man in history, which was in itself the problem of its demise. As soon as Musa died, the struggle for power and the fact that there were no written lines or ways of succession led to civil wars that weakened the empire. You could literally 
say he placed Mali on the map. Stories about his fabulous wealth even reached Europe. The Catalan Atlas in 1375 by Spanish cartographers shows West Africa dominated by a depiction of Mansa Musa sitting regally on a throne wearing an impressive gold crown holding a golden staff in one hand and somewhat gleefully a huge nugget of gold in the other. After the publication of his atlas, Mansa Musa became cemented in the global imagination as a figure of stupendous wealth. It was such tales of gold that would inspire later European pocket watchers to brave disease, warlike tribes and inhospitable terrain to find the fabled riches of Timbuktu, the golden city of the desert that nobody quite knew where to place on the map even in the 18th century. So the stories and myths behind the king with a lifelong supply of gold and unimaginable wealth led all those Europeans pocket watchers to try to race to try and take it away by conquering it. They were the original, they are the original looters and robbers. They need to return every single dime they took from Africans and Americans even multiplied by 10 for what they did to our ancestors in both places. First, Portugal in 1444, with Malians effectively repelling them. But after fights, after fights, after fights, Portugal conquered and colonized several important cities along the coast of the empire. This continues for hundreds of years until Mali became even a French colony. My god, why can't the Europeans mind their business? Why are they always pocket watching? Timbuktu in Africa, Uh, the stories of El Dorado here in America, they robbed us naked of everything we have. Literally the two richest, naturally richest continents and somehow we're the third world, we are the poorest people on the planet, that's why imperialism must go. And also guys, this serves as a lesson, do not pocket watch. That's just not classy, that's just not Not the way to go. Never count anyone else's pockets. So the French exploited them, looted, sacked every resource, leaving the wealthiest empire known to man, an empire where people joined to raise their quality of living in poverty. While Mansa Musa I is a story filled with unimaginable wealth and riches so big they even crashed an entire economy, it's the story of an African king who built an empire to rival any European or Asian empire and only came short sure to the Mongol Empire. He patronized learning, culture and arts in a time and region those elsewhere write off as a savage era. It might be forgotten but he's still one of the greatest leaders in history. Remember, when you see on the news, on the TV about Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Carlos Slim, Donald Trump, Warren Buffett, The richest of them all, with more wealth than any of those combined, was an African man who used those riches to build, not to alienate or destroy.